As we get ever closer to the US Open going ahead, more news comes out about the USTA every day. And this morning is no different with the organization cutting 110 jobs and closing down its New York office for the time being. This is Breakpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Val Febo. Plenty to get through today. Uh, Joel Frucci is there on the other line on Zoom. Joel, how are you going? Yeah, going all right, Val. Um, I guess you could say we're going a bit yank today because there's a lot of... Uh... A lot to talk about from uh, from over in the states. It's fair to yeah. say. Yeah, no, th- there is. It's um, it was pretty shocking news to wake up to. We keep seeing all these reports that you know the U.S. Open wants to go ahead and it's full steam ahead to the tournament. The reports this morning indicate anything otherwise that they're closing their New York office and have cut 110 jobs for the time being. So that's um, what was that about uh, 30% of the organization, um, something along those lines. So it's um, it's pretty consuming. Oh, pretty concerning. Sorry, not consuming. I don't know where that word came from. But um, yeah, it's... Uh, how am I going? Um, but yeah, no, it's it's really... It's interesting because we've been saying the last few weeks, again, broken record on this show, um, that we, uh, we're we really... We're concerned that the US Open won't go ahead and we don't think it should go ahead. And by all the reports this morning, surely not. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess now... Uh from from what we're seeing out of the states and the USTA, we can see why they're so desperate for it to go ahead uh, because it is it is really their their cash cow. The, the US Open, as you know, the French Open is for for French tennis, the Australian Open for Tennis Australia, and um, so on and so forth. But um, yeah, I mean, we we can see why they're why they're doing it, but um, you know, I still can't see it happening. Um, and even even this week, Val, there's been some. Um, some pretty high-profile names in, in the sport, Rafael Nadal, Novak Djokovic, and also Ash Barty have um, expressed their own concerns about um, about the tournament going ahead and, and the protocols around COVID-19 and um, you know whether, whether or not they feel safe. And all three of those players have said, look, we're you know, a little bit concerned that um, we're not fully safe um, until the, the virus has been dealt with completely, which uh, unfortunately probably won't be a f- for a while if we get a vaccine. Um, so it's going to be interesting, but look, it's you know, a sad day because um, we never want to see anyone uh, lose their job, not least um, in, uh, in in the tennis bodies. So uh, look, um, I guess it really it really sort of amplifies why um, all the the tennis associations are so keen, or the ones that are lucky enough to get grand slams, but also the ones that um, you know have uh, have one thousand events, five hundred events, WTA Premier events, whatever it is, why they're all so eager. Um, and really desperate to get uh, get their events up and running. It really just shows why. Yeah, hundred percent. And I just looked; it was twenty percent of the entire company that's uh, that has been uh, closed down for the time being. So disappointing. And as as you said, Nadal, Barty, and Djokovic all coming out and saying that the concerns are pretty high about going to New York in um, in late August, early September. So I, look and. Doesn't seem. I think the the Grand Slam that's most likely to go ahead out of any of them at the moment is the French Open. If if it if it was yeah. to happen in twenty twenty, um, I still don't think that if if you can't travel to America, you can't travel to Europe. It's the same. It's it's very similar. Um, especially for us here in Australia, it's sort of very similar travel time. Um, from here to New York or here to Paris. So, yeah, it's um it's one that I think that is. It's it's inevitable, it seems, but who who the hell knows? But yeah, um, they, they've also talked about hosting the Cincinnati Western and Southern Open, uh, moving that from Ohio into the Billie Jean King Tennis Center the week before the U.S. Open, so to play sort of a double event. Um, I, I'm not sure how 
how that would work or how that how the preparations for that would go. It, it could be interesting to see how they do it, but um, yeah, I'm I'm not quite sure that uh, that that is the right solution either to have more players sort of circulating around New York for the, for that period of time. But yeah, it's. It, I don't know. There's so many solutions that are being thrown out here that I'm not sure if they would work. But it, it for, for as a business module, like it, it would make the money. But also, people in Cincinnati and Ohio, the Ohio economy is in a sort of state would it would go it would go down as the globe we're already in a recession. So, I think that as as a state economy, I reckon Ohio would take that as a massive uh, a massive slump because that does produce some yeah. of the biggest players in the world. Um, and now all of a sudden they're going to lose that tournament to New York, which will get a little bit of a boost with the US Open the next week. But um, And the job loss and the people that won't be working, would they go over to New York? Or I don't understand how any of this would work. So um, yeah, America is kind of, it's kind of like an epicenter of solutions at the moment or, or Mr. Fix-It problems, but yeah, I'm, I'm just—I'm not sure what's going to happen. I'm really not. Yeah, I'm really not. Yeah, it's all a bit of a logistical nightmare. But I think they'll—I think if they're going to get uh, get the US Open up and running, um, you know, I think the, the Cincinnati Open is well, pro- probably almost certainly the um, you know the, the biggest event in the lead up to the tournament. So you need to give players some kind of preparation, and um, I think minimizing movement is is the way to do it. Mm. Um, uh, even. Even then, though, if, if players are stuck in New York for a month, however long it is, um, you, you, you've got to feel as though their, their movement is going to be pretty significantly yeah. restricted as well in that setting. So, look, it's going to be interesting um, whether the players are, are receptive to these ideas because at the end of the day, um, you can't force players to partake in your event. No. Um, I'm sure a lot of them, if it gets up and going, will want to participate because this is their livelihood. But if a, if they're feeling unsafe, and also if they're if they're you know I guess overwhelmed by all these logistical challenges, um, you know, like I even heard a rumor, um, completely unverified, that um, there'll be color-coded balls or, or something um, for players at different ends. Take this with a pinch of salt, but uh, just just so um, so players at that respective ends only touch with their hands the balls. That is their designated colour. I don't know where that came from, but it's just something that I heard. Imagine that um, playing with pink balls in the US Open, like, and, yeah. and it won't, it can never happen because TV rights. Yeah, I can't see that one happening. It can never ever happen because it's got to look good on TV. It was like the World Series cricket when they tested all those different colour balls yeah. to see what would work on TV, and the white ball was by far the best and stayed there on camera. Yeah. Vision for the players, the yellow ball, like it's been yellow for however long, and before that it was white. So. I don't think I don't think the color coded balls would change unless they get like a little permanent marker, or they get the ball the ball companies so Slazenger or Penn or Wilson to actually create player player names or paint player names onto the balls. Um, but could that change the aerodynamic of the ball? You, you never know unless you just draw yeah. you put a dot on it with a permanent marker. <laughs> That's yeah that, yeah. Yeah, to take take the, take that one with an absolute pinch of salt. Um, but I mean, the reality of it is, I mean, you've also got you know ball people touching the balls as well. So yeah. you know, there's only so far that you can that you can reduce the the contact of the balls. But yeah, look, I mean, there's a lot of other stuff, and we talked about it last week. So for any listeners that want to sort of um, read up on that or listen up on that, go back and, uh, and yeah. check out our last episode from, and the week before, from, and the week before, and the week before. Yeah. We've to- <laughs> yeah, we've yeah, talked really about this literally back. every week. Yeah. I'm about to pull my hair out, Joel, but there's just it's just this has been 
This has been the topic of discussion for so, so long. I cannot wait until tennis actually does come back so we can we can talk about matches, we can talk about tournaments, we can talk about real tennis news. Um, and it will just make life so much easier um, and so much more interesting, I think, than rather than the repetitive, the repetitive stuff that's being spoken by. I think all tennis broadcasters and all tennis, all tennis shows or segments around the world. It's not just us. I think it's, I think it's absolutely everybody and and what people are what people are trying to do. So, fingers crossed, we can get some domestic tournaments. There was one in the Czech Republic last week with um. As Denek Kolar winning over there in Prague, and Petra Kvitova also winning over Karolina Muchova. So, you know, at least some domestic competitions are going ahead, and we can sort of look to them. But yeah, there's just there's not much going on. Hopefully, Tennis Australia can announce one soon because that's one that I'm really excited yeah. for. If we can get um, if we can get a domestic competition competition up and running here, because flights are soon to be coming back here. So hopefully, crowds are permitted to go into events very soon. So fingers crossed, Joel. Yeah, fingers crossed. And uh, just before we get to Mark Zafouas from um, from the tennis menu, of course, uh, speaking of Australians, we had Alex Diminar playing in, uh, in an exhibition event over in, uh, in in Spain where he's currently based at the moment in some fairly decent company with uh, Pablo Carreño Buster and Roberto Batista Rigu and also Pablo Andujar. And he, uh, he got a win over Andujar. And uh, any time you beat a Spaniard on, on clay, yeah. I think you can probably hold your head up a, a little bit higher because, yep. uh, of course, the Spaniards are the, master is, uh, the masters of that um, particular surface. So it was good to see uh, good to see Alex get himself a win and, uh, you know, sort of keep some momentum up. And, um, of course, we were just uh, off air before over text, we were talking a lot about Dominic Team because he's been playing uh, in an event in, uh, in Austria as well. And he actually uh, got beaten overnight by uh, Christian Offner, I think. And um, we might save that for Mark because it's something that I want to ask him about. I think um I think it's Sebastian Offner. They're actually great mates though. Sebastian Offner, yeah. Um, Apologies to him. <laughs> they're um, they're actually they're actually really good mates, Offner and team. And Offner made the third round at um, Wimbledon uh, a couple of years ago, I think back in two thousand and eighteen. And um he sort of came from nowhere that week and and played a really really solid tournament. And um and he he knows team's game very very well. And if anybody was going to beat him, um I I, I would say that it'd be him because often when you do play your best mates the, the guys that you've been hitting with for a really long time yeah. you may be you, you yeah. may be a much better tennis player or any sport of what they are but they know your game so well and they can tear you to shreds and they know what strengths you have they know what weaknesses you have and if they're on they can exploit them really really well and we saw that we spoke yeah. about James uh, that with James Duckworth when he played Ben Mitchell who was one of his best mates and Duckworth is by far a much better tennis player than what Ben Mitchell is. No disrespect to Ben Mitchell, but I think Duckworth's CV speaks for itself. And, you know, that match went 8-6 in the fifth on a 40-degree day. So it's, um, you know, it's part and parcel of, of one-on-one sport and how good it can be at times. And, yeah, I think team... And we were talking about this off-air, like, what should team be disappointed with that loss? I don't think you should be. I think it's an exhibition match. You always want to win, but exhibitions are when you trial stuff when you you know test out things that you've been working on over time um over like over this break and i don't think you'd be training at full tilt yet i think when there's a set date when the players actually do return because i don't think that's going to be at the end of july i think that 
then we'll start to see the players put into their full training block like what they do during a preseason. And Federer has even said that he's not going at full speed yet. He's going to wait until the time is right and manage his body. And I think that's what a lot of other people are doing. And team has been one that suffered a lot of injuries in the past. So I think team is probably taking a little bit of, uh, of that mold. And he's been criticized for playing too much tennis in the past. So fingers crossed that he's trying to manage his body a little bit and get that recovery and recuperation in so that he can charge it uh, the tennis season whenever that does start, if it's 2020 or 2021. I know you disagree, Joel, but um, that, they're, <laughs> yeah. they're, they're my thoughts on, on that matter. Yeah, no, fair enough. I, I, I just think that, um, you know, given the break that we've had, um, especially in a, in a, like a player like Dominic Team, who's really at the peak of his powers, I think, should really be sort of knuckling down. And he's he's just trying to crack in really to the top top three, top two, you know, to, um, you know, number one in the world. That's what he wants. So I, I think if I was him, I'd be uh, really looking to to push on. But yeah, if uh, Sebastian Offner, if you're listening, I'll buy you a, uh, a schnitzel and a, and a Stein if you're ever in Australia because I called you Christian. So uh, sorry about that, mate. Yeah, I don't know who you got that confused with, but uh, maybe Christian Garin or something like that. But I don't know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so back to that uh, Alicante challenger. Uh, just for now, Demonor was scheduled to play Roberto Bautista Agu in the final, but got washed out by rain. So, um, yeah, that's that's disappointing because it's the summer it over there. Fun. And, yeah, apparently torrential downpours in uh, in beautiful Spain. And, yeah, things didn't get played. But uh, should we get to Mark Safoulis, Joel? Yep, let's do it. And Mark does join us on the line right now through Zoom. Mark Safoulis, tennis coaching extraordinaire from the tennis menu, joins us. Mark, how are you? I'm going really well. Thanks for that nice intro. No worries, well, mate. You're an absolute superstar. We we can't have you on and not give you the most glowing intro that there is. Um, but the tennis menu, we had you on uh, a couple of months ago or a month and a half ago, and we were chatting about the site and that the launch was imminent. Well, that launch has happened, and tell us a bit about it and and what you can expect from the website. Which um, I, I I need to say also, I need to give a glowing recommendation to anybody who allows me to put my face on their website. So. Uh, <laughs> It's good to have your head on there. We're getting a lot more female viewers than we've ever had. So I um, highly actually, doubt that. <laughs> it's actually actually nice, but no, look, it's been a it's been a long time coming, guys. And you know, at the end of the day, it's, as I've mentioned to you in the past, it's it's just exciting to see you know so much hard work pay off. And you know, for everyone that's been able to to contribute to what we've been able to do, um, from co- from some of our coach friends to people who write articles like yourself, Val, and. Uh, you know, we're just so so glad to, to finally have our new site up, which is a great thing. Our product's not available yet, and we're just putting our final touches on it, which is pretty cool. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's super exciting. Uh, we can actually finally see four years of work come together. And, um, you know, I, I never thought in my wildest dreams it would look as good as it did. And, I, and, and to Nick Gissing's credit, he's done an amazing job on the website. And, um, you know, he's... he's um, you know, there's a reason why he's behind the camera and behind the computer and not in front of it. Uh, but no, he's, he's done a ripping job. And I'm just, you know, we're just together, I think we form a pretty formidable, uh, you know, partnership. No, he sure has. And some of the, the Instagram stories and just the graphics that you guys have been posting every day, have been, they look really slick. And, um, and tell us about sort of, it's very difficult and to, and I'm not very savvy with IT or anything like that, but actually putting those sites together. Tell us about some of the intricacies that sort of go into changing a website and changing a whole, almost rebrand, I guess, of, of a whole of a whole site and how hard that is to actually do. 
yeah, it's it's brutal, and it's not lucky it's not me doing it. Cause I've got bugger all idea as well. But um, you know, I talked to Nick about a few things, and you know, I, you know, he'd put something up there, and I'd say to him, oh, I really don't like that look, and I want this to become this, this, or this. And and he'd say to me, Do you know what that actually takes? You know, I've got to redo the whole page, and I've got to take down you know A, B, and C. It'll take me another day or two to do that. And and I, and I think from a coaching perspective, I never quite understood how much detail goes into it, how much fiddly little things are behind the scenes and from coding to, to links to pages to, you know, all those sort of little things that I probably never thought about. And, you know, he's done a great job at that. And, you know, we wouldn't be where we are today without his um, knowledge of technology, but, but also his knowledge of tennis. And I think him being a level two coach as well, he had the tennis background to, to understand what tennis needed to look and feel like as well. And, and I think that's where our two brands, I guess, individually um, come together really well is that he had that tennis background as well. And it, it's helped me a lot because he understands the terminology that I'm trying to trying to provide and the look that I'm trying to look, go for as well. Yeah, he sounds like a great asset to have on, Mark. And I think uh, it's fair to say that it probably makes three of us that we don't really have that uh, that <laughs> IT sort of knowledge, certainly myself. But, of course, it is uh, thetennismenu.com, all one word for anyone that wants to check it out. Um, just on the, I guess, on the, the loosening of all the restrictions around COVID-19, I've been pretty stoked because it means I've been able to get out to my local club finally. And I think I've had probably about uh, half a dozen hits in uh, in uh, a couple of weeks. But um, how about yourself? Um, have you been able to sort of reconnect with uh, with some of your pupils? Yeah, it's, it's obviously an amazing time to be able to, like, almost you feel like the shackles are off. And, you know, as a coach, I mean, you know, I was talking today this morning to my players about identity. And I feel like a lot of tennis players, a lot of tennis people have lost their identity through this COVID-19 because we've been unable to be who we need to be. Um, but then I think the other flip side is that, of that is I talk to them about your identity is you as a person, not you as a tennis player. And you, you're a person much longer than you are a tennis player. And I feel like that we have to go back to being that a little more often in society. And tennis is what I do. It's not who I am. Um, so I tried to find ways to, to keep myself busy through that. But, yeah, we're back, you know, on court every day now, which is great. Um, the kids have – I think the kids have come back better because they're so more motivated because they understood what now has – what was taken away from them. They really they, – they loved. And they, they didn't realise how much they loved it till they were, you know, got taken away. And it's been an amazing comeback the last two weeks, really two, three weeks of being on the court and the kids are loving it. And uh, we've got a lot of our – a lot of restrictions in place on court though and I think – we're trying to take the 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 high end degree of safety for our, our players, parents, and coaches. Um, so you know, we're using sanitizer. Where the kids aren't allowed to touch the tennis balls. They have to wear a glove when they serve um, to make sure that you know we keep the, the the community safe. And we need to play our role as much as anyone. As much as I want to be on the court, if people don't want to adhere to, to safety. Um, legislation that we've put together then you know they're not going to be on court so um you know i want to play my role in the community and make sure that that we do that and um if it means that you know we're not on the court as much as we need, normally are well at least we're on the court and i think that's a really important part that we're back to some sort of normality yeah absolutely and I, the glove is a really interesting one because um i mean i, I know i can, can speak for, for what i've um been presented with i guess at our at our club we don't have to wear any 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 gloves or anything, but obviously there are all the different, um, you know, the different safety measures. And, um, you know, I was just really interested to hear you, you mentioned that. Um, like, is it, is it some, um, like, obviously, we've, you know, we've had to go online and it's presented all these different 
um, things that we've had to adjust to. But even something as simple as that, I mean, um, like for you as a coach, like just something as small as that, um, how, how, uh, how has it taken a lot to actually adjust to those sort of things? Yeah, it has. It, it's taken a lot because we've we've got no parents on the court, so we're picking up the balls ourselves. If the kids use a ball tube, we have to wipe it down with a disinfectant wipe at the end of every lesson, um, wiping down the baskets, the gates at the end, the end of every day, disinfected wipes, uh, to have sanitizer before and after practice. Um, there's, there's a lot of little things that I think, and you know what, people people see it as a bit of a, a problem. I see it as, uh, you know, we're going back to being what we normally should be, and that's hygienic. You know, I think we take for granted the hygiene and right now, like I've never washed my hands more or looked after myself more in my life. But, you know, I think that's where life needs to be. I don't think, I think we've just taken it, you know, for a grain of salt and, and it should be, hang on, I should be washing my hands after every time I'm on the court. Should be sanitizing or I should be cleaning my baskets and I should be cleaning the, the fences and I should be cleaning the, the ball tubes and keeping people healthy. And, you know, we're playing a role in society, not just for COVID-19, but for the whole community in general to make sure that we, we have, you know, healthy people in our communities. And, and, you know, I think it's made us wake up a little bit. It's been a bit of a wake up call for a lot of coaches and a lot of people out there, but you know, if it's, if it's what we need to do, it's what we need to do. And, and, you know, we're not going to shortcut on safety uh, for the sake of hitting a tennis ball. Yep, and I think this has scared most people straight as well, I guess, with with um, you know, the amount of job loss and, and money cuts that have been going around everywhere. So fingers crossed that we can come through this and, and get away from it pretty quickly and we can move back to somewhat normal life, I guess. So fingers crossed. But moving on to we wanna chat last time, we didn't get enough time to discuss your coaching career and um and the sort of the differences and the, the little nuances that, that you go through around all the uh, between different players and I think what happens on tour as a coach because it's very different um to being a player so sort of the day-to-day life of a coach and um there's there's there must be so many stories that you've got that we probably don't have time to get into today but I think just to start with the a day in the life of a coach so on match day and whether that be what the differences between a day match and a night match, what, what exactly is your role on that day? What, what do you do for the player um, on those days and, and how do you get them prepared for, for a certain match? It's a, it's a great question. And obviously multiple answers just due to the player that you're working with on a particular day. So um, the day of the match for a coach, it's more about the mindset and being a psychologist. Um, and you, you basically, you can't, make the player better in the way they play on that particular day, you can make them worse. Um, and I think there's a, there's a little thing that I always talk about. Sometimes the best coaching is when you say nothing at all. And I feel like as a coach, you've got to understand your athlete and what they need for that particular moment. And, you know, different players need different things. So, you know, um, Victor Hanescu was one where we basically before matches, he'd be so nervous. Um, and it would be a matter of, you know, get up in the morning, go for walks, um, you know, just really relax him a little bit, talk about other things, keep his mind off the game. Um, you know, Arena Roddy, you know, was the same. You know, we talked a lot about other things in, in, in general. I think it's like, you know, when you look at some players, they need more than others. Dane Papoggia was one that um, comes to mind that we had to talk all about the match. He just needed to, he needed to be in the match. And we had like game plans written out, like two, three pages of game plan A, B, C, um, and he'd, he'd look at it before the before the match, and then I'd say, "We fold up B and C, you know." And then whenever whenever you feel like you need to go to it, you know, pick it up at the change of ends, have a read of it, and then go and do it. And 
everybody needs something different, you know, whether it be you're sitting in the courtesy car on the way to the courts and they just want to peace. They don't want to hear from you. Or it might be you need to talk to them a heap in the car so it keeps their mind off the, off the match. Or, you know, there's so many different ways and elements that a coach um, needs to go about it. And I think it's about knowing your player. And at the end of the day, I, I, I'd like to think that I'm really good at that. I think I, I, I'd like to know my players inside and out and uh, whether I need to rev them up or not. Um, some players need a bit of a pump up right before they walk on. And some players only want to see it for 10, 15 minutes. So you've just got to find out what works for who and, and yeah, and accommodate. So, you know, and you talked about night and day matches and, you know, a night match, I remember Victor Hanescu played Roger Federer at the Australian Open in 2011. Um, and we had all day um, to think about it. And I found that as a coach, that was brutal. Uh, I hated sitting around all day and, thinking about the match and what was going to happen and then organising people's tickets and, you know, making sure we got everybody in that we needed to get in, family, friends, who was sitting in the box, what the order of the, the setup in the box was going to be, who was going to sit behind who and um, who did Victor want to see mostly. And, like, it was all those sort of things that you don't even think about, organising the courtesy car to pick you up at a certain time, you know, what time does practice need to be, who you're going to hit with that's going to simulate the same ball as Roger. Um, what time are we going to hit at? Is it two hours before? Do you want to hit on Rod Labor? Do you want to hit on the outside courts? You know, how do we simulate the match? There's so many elements that probably go into it, and the coaching is a very, very minimal part of it. Um, it's more about how do we manage this player on this on this day and, and help them to feel comfortable and settled. So that's basically on game day what, you, what you're doing. When it comes to that psychology, Mark, I've always been really interested by that. And I guess, as you say, it changes from, from player to player. Um, I've always been fascinated by how a lot of players tend to tighten up on, on like crunch points if they're, say, break point down or even if they're advantage up or um, whatever it is. Um, and I guess it does vary from player to player. I remember watching Sophia Cannon in uh, the Australian Open final this year and she had that one just incredible game um, against Gabini Muguruza in the third set where she was love 40 down and ended up coming from nowhere, winning that game, and obviously went on to win the match. And I've just always been fascinated by players in that position and how they react um, in those situations. So, like, as, as a coach, how do you go about, I guess, telling your players in those positions not, not to really fear what's to come, I guess, if they, if they worry about, you know, losing that point and obviously end up putting themselves behind the eight ball? Yeah, I'll start off with a little story for you there, Joel. All right, so if I said to you guys... Don't think of a pink elephant. Okay, don't think of a pink elephant. I don't want you to think about a pink elephant. You're going to think of a pink elephant. Already right? am. Already <laughs> so, am. So basically, so basically, the, the mind is a really important um, tool, and it's probably our most important tool because every thought creates an action. So a lot of the, co the communication and the, the language around talking to an athlete is think about what you want to do, not what you don't want to do. Um, so I want you and these big points to think of, use your weapon, your big serve, your big forehand. Every time big point happens, use your weapons. Um, you know, if you start talking about, okay, don't tighten up in this moment. I want you to, you know, just make the ball. And if you don't make the ball, obviously, you know, you're going to lose the point. So if you start thinking the negative side mm. or coaching the negative side, they start to become that. And it's all in language and how we go about it. But everyone's obviously, as you said, it's, they're very different in that. Um, it's about creating a process and in, the process is built in training. So a lot of the time um, you, you're putting in uh, mindset and thought processes in practice. So when they go to the match, it happens instinctively. Um, and I think 
you know, that's the biggest part about getting players prepared for a tournament or a match is, you know, if you're on the day telling them what to think, uh, you, you're in trouble. All the work's done on the practice court. The match court is just a result of what you've done in practice. So, uh, and that's where a lot of your systems and structures and protocols are in place. Um, and then as a coach on match day, you can't really do much. You know, I mean, so, some of the language that you might use as a coach as you're watching might be, you know, you, you clap your hands and you say, you know, that was a great, great serve. Well done on using your weapons. And then it reminds them, it triggers them to go, oh, that's right, he wants me to use my weapons on the big point. You know, and I think it's all, that's the, the psychology of coaching is, you know, trigger them to do what they do best on match day and not fear the worst. And if they're fearing the worst, then, you know, they'll, they'll tighten up. And as, as you said, they'll really struggle in those big moments. Yep. And you talk about psychology of coaching and, and all of those little little differences there with, with different people. And people management is obviously something that you need to be unbelievable with in terms of coaching. And you've got to deal with different personalities. And obviously, some people are more easygoing, as you said. Some people are, some people are very sort of rigid in how they do their or regimented in how they do their things. They don't want to hear from you. How do you, how long did it take you to develop your people management skills in terms of all the different players that you've coached and how to adapt to all the different personalities? Because what everybody's so vastly different in, in those aspects. Yeah, I'm still, I'm still learning, mate. And it, honestly, it's something that I think I'll, I'll never be a hundred percent clear on because so many people and I find it very challenging. People are so different, you know, no matter, no matter what, every single person is extremely different and you could read every textbook, you can read every single book on personality profiling and, but someone's going to throw a spanner in the works everywhere. And as a, as a coach, you have to be adaptable. Um, you have to be creative. You have to trust your athlete. They have to trust you. Um, you have to be their friend. You have to be their mentor. Um, and, and sometimes they're going to be your coach as well. You know, they teach you more than you can teach them. Every athlete for me has taught me more than I'll ever learn in a book, ever. You know, the athletes are what teach the coaches. Um, uh, there's a, a quote that I always go by uh, that coaches never create players. Players create players. Um, and then players will also create the coach. Um, and, you know, every player that I've worked with, may have improved a little bit from me, but I reckon I've improved more from them than they have from me. And that's, you know, my philosophy in life is to always learn from the people that I'm, I'm working with. Um, and, you know, it's it's a challenge to deal with different people day in, day out. You know, every hour on the court, I'm dealing with a new player. You know, I have to change my personality to match theirs. You know, some kids don't like when I'm loud and, and, and yelling and being, you know, enthusiastic, so I pull it back for them. But then the next kid needs you to be loud because he's got no self-drive. So you've got to push him and, you know, you know, chant and yell and scream and carry on to make sure that he's up with you. So, you know, it's a matter of being adaptable in those situations. And the good coaches are the best ones at adapting. Yeah, 100%. And you talk about the differences of people as well. And, and there's different rules on the ATP and the WTA. Uh, in terms of coaching and what you're allowed to do. And what did you find as coaching uh, uh, the women and the men? So obviously the differences between a Victor Hanescu and, and an Arena Rodionova, there's obviously going to be a lot. And there's also stuff that the organizations allow you to do more of and less of. So what were the terms, what were the differences there that you needed to be aware of? Yeah, that's, it's a good question because the, the male and female game is extremely different. Um, and I, at the same time I was working with, um, Anastasia Rodinova, Arena Rodinova, 
Victor Hanescu. I had Karan Rastogi from India. Um, and I had a girl that was playing juniors. I had five players at the Australian Open. Um, uh, three were in the main draw of the of the um, of the Open, and then I had one in the juniors, and I had one in the qualities. And it was trying to go from court to court and switch mindsets with each person. I found really challenging, um, and it really taught me a lot about myself. It taught me a lot about how much I know about my players. It taught me a lot about um, how to. I guess before I walk on the court, prepare myself for what I was going to encounter. You know, a lot of the the, the female coaching is really um, about relationships. You know, I find that you know it was all about the trust, the relationship, um, and just being there for them was really important. Um, the male coaching was more about the structures and having some guidance and some clarity. Um, it was about you know how do I play this player? They wanted to know every every detail. And I thought that was really interesting as to how I coached both. And I, I messed up many times, you know, and it was all about learning for me. And, um, and the other thing that challenges me is going from the tennis court to the footy ground and the terminology and the language difference was like, wow, it's, it's so tough. You know, I'd coach on a Saturday morning um, in tennis, you know, spend 6.30 to 11 o'clock on the court, drive to my VFL game, get there at 12, and I'm coaching men. And it was like, Okay, so I've got young kids into men, and then how does that how does that change? And you know, you have to be so adaptable in, in coaching and and just deal with the person that's in front of you. That's all you can really do. Um, Mark, we've got a, this is an interesting question because I had been told a story by a mate who who uh, knows or has been involved with female sport in another code. And he's been able to speak to a few of the, the coaches in, in those sports. I won't name them for obvious reasons, but um, he was sort of saying that some of the things that he's been told about males coaching in women's sport is that they're, they're kind of confined in, in some respects about um, things that they can that they can say to their athletes without being sort of taken out of context, but also, um, I guess, looked upon in a negative light whereby they're being detrimental to their you know, their players, um, their, their body or their or their mind. So, like, have you ever found yourself in that situation where there are certain things that you have to, uh, you know, say a certain way or not say at all? That is, an, um, that is an awesome question. It really is an awesome question because it's, it's very true. And you, The first part of your relationship with any any athlete, doesn't matter if it's male or female, is you're treading water. You, you, you're you just going, okay, well, what can I get away with and what can't I and how much can I push and how much... Can I, do I need to hold back and what are they going to accept and what are they not going to accept? And until you form a strong relationship and strong trust, I think you're always on eggshells um, and, and you've got to be really cautious of that. Um, and and I, I guess I'm, I'm trying to be on eggshells a little bit here because it's a really important topic because some players, no matter male or female, can really take things the wrong way. Um, and you might not have meant it like that, but I guess it's when you understand each other that's when the, the, the communication can open up to another level. And, um, you know, I have probably said things that some pl- players might have taken the wrong way, but I've been fortunate that a lot of my players have been, you know, um, accepting and trusting of me to be able to take it the right way. And, you know, there's times where I've coached females and had to put my arm around them, you know, because they're upset after a match. And if you don't have that trust, you can't do that. And if you don't have that buy-in, if you're not part of, you know, each other's lives, if it's just a coach-player relationship, it's not enough. You need to you need to in, indulge yourself in their life a little bit and, 
and be one with them and make sure they understand that you're there with them and for them, um, not for yourself. And that makes the conversations a little easier to be able to have. And, um, you know, players have cried with me, players, male and female, it doesn't matter what gender, you know, we've sat in locker rooms and cried, you know, cried together and it's about being, and they can only do that if they're, if they're trusting because you're not going to be vulnerable in front of someone that you don't trust. So it, these are the, the, the really interesting parts about coaching that I find no matter what, I guess, gender you're coaching, you have to accept and you have to understand and you have to first get that buy-in and trust and build that relationship before anything can be done from there. Yep. No, all, all ties back to trust and, and relationships, I suppose. And uh, this is one that Val and I were talking a bit about before. Um, obviously, the, the players' restrictions are, are, are loosening all around the world. They're sort of getting back uh, into their routines or trying to rediscover a bit of normality and we, we saw overnight that um in uh, one of the uh, exhibition events over in in austria dominic team had a had a loss and um probably normally would be a match that he was winning and val and i were talking a bit about it and obviously we don't know quite what dominic team is doing behind the scenes and and how he's training but we were sort of talking about how um you know just looking at things as we see them from afar how he should be approaching a tournament like that or how the big players should be a t- approaching um, exhibition events. I certainly think that um, those guys, especially someone like Dominic Team, who's really pushing the top five now, that the best players in the world should really be going sort of full kilter at a tournament like this, or even an, even an exhibition like this. Um, so, what do you think they should be doing, Mark? Do you reckon they should be putting themselves in that position where you know they're on tour and they're playing competitive events, they're playing for points? Um, I hate to disagree with you, Joel, but uh, I will a little bit. bit, But um, I I feel like it's it's hard because no one knows when the tour is going back. So if you find yourself peaking too early for the tour, it's going to be really hard to sustain that over a long period of time. So I think like there's a lot of opportunity now for players, and I know myself coaching a few players that are that are on the tour. You almost fine tuning some different things that you want to implement into their game. It's almost a pre-season opportunity to change some game planning, to change some game style, to change some technique, to change some physical attributes, to change some structure. And he may be just going through that at this particular time. And it's really hard to know looking from the outside in. But, you know, if, I mean, if he was playing his best tennis now, you, you'd be worried because it's not going to be able to sustain because I don't think the tour is going to go back for however long. So, you know, right at this minute, they're probably half of them are only been just hitting balls and not playing practice sets or anything. So I think it's it's almost like a bit of a practice opportunity for them to play some matches, trial some new game plans, trial some new structures. How is he going to beat Nadal? You know, on clay. Um, how is he going to win? You know, his first Grand Slam or whatever it might be. So it's it's that fine tuning opportunity, and I know I'm doing the same with some players. You know, we're fine tuning game plans and structures in their game and. You know, I don't want them to show everything just yet. I want them to make sure that they wait for that first opportunity and, and be able to take it with both hands. All right, so that was the winner of that argument. <laughs> I, was about, I was about to say, I, I, I was about to say it's exactly what I said before, but I just didn't say it as eloquently as you did, <laughs> But um, I no. smiling and I'm like, oh, I think, I think something's going on here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we literally we've been having this discussion all morning, so I'm um, I'm very glad you said that. But Mark Sapolis, thank you so much for joining us today. And you can find the tennis menu on Instagram at the tennis menu, same handle on Twitter at the tennis menu, and on Facebook as well. And the tennis if you want to go and subscribe and sign up, um, purchase the packages. They are seriously the most in depth tennis coaching techniques that I've I've seen and in. in 
in-depth descriptions of every single shot. It's it's just an unbelievable website, and there's nothing quite like it worldwide. So, Mark Zafoulis, thank you so much, and you're doing an unbelievable job. Always a pleasure, guys. If there's anything I can ever do, always ask. But, yeah, hopefully everyone out there can uh, enjoy the tennis menu uh, as much as we've enjoyed putting it together. So, you know, it's been our goal is to, to get our ideas on onto a, a platform, and, um, you know, just glad to share it because tennis needs more more sharing and I think we we can do that a lot better and and bring the community of tennis together. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Mark. My pleasure. Mark Savoulis there joining us on Breakpoint GT. He's an absolutely wonderful coach and a wonderful guy as well. There's um, you know, there's nothing that he doesn't know about coaching. What he doesn't know isn't worth knowing. So he's an unbelievable guy and uh, fingers crossed the tennis menu can provide so many more tennis students with so much more uh, so much more career progression as well. It's one of the best things that's happened in 2020, that, uh, that site launch. And speaking of 2020, there's not much that's been good. But Joel, we thought we try and shed a light on some positive stuff that's happened this year and um, we'll go yeah. through our top three moments each of, of 2020 so far. There have been few and far between in terms of tennis, but there's been a couple of little nuggets in there as well that I think we've really enjoyed. So do you want to go first? Yeah, sure. I'll kick things off. So uh, my uh, my third best moment of 2020 coming in at number three, I've gone a bit outside the square. Now, this is a guy that we that we like. He's a bit of a cult figure for us, the Ramrod, Rajiv Ram. Um, he's played nearly 600 doubles matches um, in his career, right? And that's not including mixed doubles, by the way. But he, uh, at the Australian Open, of course, in, uh, in 2020, in January, the, uh, the only Grand Slam that we're probably going to get this year, we think anyway. Um, Rajiv Ram won his first doubles title. Um, so uh, that was a nice little moment. Um, obviously, we don't, we probably don't really give uh, enough credit to doubles players. We spoke a bit about it last week with Rob, Robbie Koenig, but um, that was a nice uh, a nice moment for Rajiv Ram, a guy who's 36 years old. He's been around for quite a while on uh, not only the doubles tour, but also singles as well. Um, at number two, also from the Australian Open, um, Sophia Cannon winning the women's title. Um, that was a terrific moment. We always love seeing a new Grand Slam champion. Thank God we're seeing some new female champions because we're not really seeing a lot of male champions. Nope. In fact, we haven't seen one since 2014. Um, but not only her winning her first Grand Slam, it was more the way she won it against uh, Garbina Muguruza. She looked down and out um, in that third set and then uh, in uh, the space of one game just completely turned things um on its head, and of course, we spoke about it with Mark how she came from Love 40 down and, and just played just five absolutely incredible points in a row. I've never seen anything like it. It was absolutely brilliant. Um, and my best moment of 2020, um, the exact second that Viewbank Tennis Club reopened. Um, of course, it's my local club, and um, uh, as soon as uh, the club reopened, uh, the racket was in my hand. I was walking over to the club and um, was rolling the arm over. So, uh yeah, being a bit selfish there, but some guy that was a good moment. No, why not? Why not? You gotta you gotta have some enjoyment in life. And uh, I got the Snapchats and the text from you saying that it was open. And um, yeah, I could tell you were very excited. But there are very good three uh, three moments of twenty twenty. My three, well, number three. Ash Barty winning in Adelaide um, on home soil as well. Number one, winning a title. Um, it doesn't get much better than that um, for an Australian player. So it was really good to see her um, claim her first title on home soil after going so close in Sydney in 2019 against Petra Kvitova. Um, number two, Roger Federer versus Tennis Sanger. And that match just had absolutely everything. And also, if you include the Federer-Milman match um, in the third round, it just... Federer down and out twice um, and to come back and win both those matches, especially saving seven match points. I was at that match and, geez, it was just 
unbelievable what Roger was yeah, able was. to accomplish in that match. And I, if I wasn't sitting in the media section, I would have screamed extremely loud and lost my voice. So, um, <laughs> yeah, no, it was unbelievable. My number one moment was the ATP Cup. I thought I was really sceptical of it leading in, and I didn't think it would be a massive success. And I thought we should just keep the tradition at the Davis Cup. But I thought it actually had more than the Davis Cup in terms of crowd um, participation, um, the crowds that they had, the tennis that was played, um, and the matches that were played. It was the, the doubles match between Demonor and Kyrgios and Salisbury and yeah. Murray um, was probably the highlight match of the tournament. And then you've got that second set between Nadal and Djokovic in the final, the top two players in the world. It was brutal tennis. And then you've got matches like Kyrgios and Tsitsipas, um, some of the matches that Dimitrov played as well. Um, and some of the young players that we, we never thought we'd get to see, some of the players from Poland, Moldova was part of the um, was part of the yeah. tournament. So uh, big Radu Albot or little Radu Albot, uh, should I say, was <laughs> um, was playing, and um, he had he was carrying his team. So no, it was it was really good and seeing um, uh, players the top players going to all corners of the country. I thought was amazing, and if we can keep the ATP Cup here in Australia. Um, for as long as we can, I hope. I hope that that does happen because it was a resounding success, and um, yeah, it was it was such an amazing tournament, and um, I absolutely loved it. So that was my top moment of 2020 so far because it's provided us with such great highlights, and um, hopefully Switzerland are in it next year so we can support Roger and Stan. And Joel, now finally our Benoit of the week, something that we're always excited about for our favourite charismatic Frenchman Benoit pair, who can be great or downright stupid half the time. So. Um, there's always a little bit of an in-between, but this week we thought uh, it had to be a positive note, and there's no more positive note than the Fight MND and the Freeze MND uh, Foundation uh, for the work that they do in fighting motor neurone disease, and it's such a horrible, horrible disease that it's just awful to see what it does to people, and, and the work that they do in trying to solve this problem and to try and uh, get a... or get some sort of reprieve for, for patients and for victims. And it's just, it's an unbelievable organization and the work they do. So they had to be our Benoit of the week this week for, for just the sheer unbelievable work that they do. And uh, joining us from Fight MND is Andrew Holmes. And Andrew, uh, thank you so much for joining us to chat about um, the organization and the work that you do. And the Big Freeze 6 was obviously yesterday and something that we hold very dear to our hearts in Australia as an AFL community anyway. Um, uh, and usually before the Queen's birthday game on a Monday between uh, Melbourne and Collingwood, there's always the the slide into the cold icy water at the MCG on a cold winter's day in Melbourne. And um, unfortunately, we couldn't see that yesterday, but the respective AFL clubs um, had one player from each uh, from each of their teams go through a slip and slide. And tell us a little bit about that. And thank you for joining us. Thanks, Val. Um, and good day, Joel. Yeah, look, it's um, it was a year with a difference, that's for sure. But I think we've just got a year with a difference entirely across society at the moment. So um, we're no different, and uh, we had to think outside the box a little bit and adapt to the circumstances and there was a real chance we weren't going to do anything at all just given the um the logistics of coronavirus and the the challenges that puts put to all of us but um where there's a will there's a way and we took the view that um you know despite notwithstanding all the challenges that the community is facing um we took the view that um mnd uh isn't stopping on you know yesterday Two more Aussies would have been diagnosed and two more would have died. Another two today, another two tomorrow. So the um, the disease doesn't uh, doesn't get postponed or cancelled. So um, so we thought neither neither can we. And 
we found a way through um, through our great association with the AFL and the AFL clubs um, and Channel Seven to to put together a just a one hour broadcast. Um, we aired nationally yesterday, um, and it was probably the one, maybe the only one time that we'd get all current players to do something um, with the uh, big three slide because uh, I'm not sure that. Uh, the Players Association or their managers or their clubs would love them to do it on Queen's birthday in front of 80,000 people and risk, risk injuring themselves. So they're all shot in their own club rooms, um, in their own isolation with teammates and a uh, very controlled environment. But it all came together uh, really well and the campaign has been a, a great success again. Before we fire off a few more uh, at you, Andrew, um, tell us a bit about for any international listeners because they're probably listening and thinking, oh, Aussie rules, how come I didn't see this? But um, can you sort of tell us a bit about, I guess, the background of Fight MND and, and um, who Neil Danaher is? Because the reality is that, um, yes, Fight MND is operating mainly in Australia, but also, I mean, the reality is that uh, motor neuron disease not only affects Australians, it affects everybody. Yeah, you're right, Joel. And I think. It's probably important to, to touch on, I suppose, what MND is for a lot of people who don't know what the disease is. Um, it's it's an aggressive terminal neurological disease that attacks the body um, really aggressively. Um, there is no effective treatment to slow it down, reverse it, stop it, or there's no known cure either. There's actually no known cause, which is the other challenge of the whole thing as well. So um, it's a uh, it, it disease it's a disease that attacks the muscles that control all your movement. Um, you're walking, your arms, um, you're swallowing, you're breathing. Um, so you, you lose all that capacity at some point in, in the disease. Um, and on average, from diagnosis to, um, to passing away, it's about two and a half years on average. So it's, it, it's very quick um, and it's very horrific on the body. Um, and basically it just ends up um, causing paralysis and um, respiratory failure. So that's, that's the background to the disease, which is why we do what we do. Um, and yeah, AFL, um, former AFL player and coach Neil Danaher um, is 59 and he's now had it for seven years. Um, and when he was first diagnosed here in Australia, particularly, there wasn't much work being done on research into, um, into a cure or treatment for, for MND. There was a lot of money being raised for caring for patients, but it was a bit of an acceptance that once you had it, there was nothing you could be done. Patients were told once they got the diagnosis to go home and get their affairs in order which was kind of the message from, from neurologists at the time. And it still sort of is because there is no treatment and cure yet. Um, so when Neil was diagnosed um, and given his profile and association with the AFL, um, he went uh, he went pretty strong with another um, another guy called Dr Ian Davis, who sadly lost his life to MND um, back in 2018. And Pat Cunningham, who would be known to the tennis audience, um, husband of um, Angie Cunningham, who um, was a, a great player in her own right and well-known across tennis circles. Um, she she also contracted the disease and um, passed away in 2016. So the three of them went uh, went forth and um, wanted to do something to raise money. Uh, a lot of people thought it was pretty fanciful and ambitious to think they could raise millions of dollars for, um, for MND, but uh, seven years on, um, and uh, $38 million invested into research, um, $23 million just from those big freeze events alone um, is pretty significant. And um, it's, now a, it's, it's now an event. So big freeze is, is a, is a um, novelty slide. Um, it sort of was born off the back of the Ice Bucket Challenge a few years ago, which was an MND 
uh, campaign that went viral around the world. Um, and the whole notion of freezing MND and stopping it was was, was what the, the idea was. And um, they uh, they thought, let's use the AFL um, landscape to uh, and community to, to, to get behind this. So every year they, uh, they roll down a slide into a freezing pool of ice, um, celebrities, media personalities, sporting stars, um, and uh, it's now become, I think, pretty entrenched on the not only the Australian sporting calendar, but um, the Australian sort of social calendar every year now. Yeah, and it's it's such an unbelievable cause. And um, Neil Danaher is an absolute inspiration for everything that he's done. And um, I'll, I'll never forget what he said on AFL 360, which is an AFL show for all the international uh, listeners, that he um, he said that the life expectancy after diagnosis is about two, two and a half years. And he said, well, I'm going at, you know, five, six years now and there's no stopping me. So, um, you know, it brings a tear to the eye every time you think about it. And he's just an unbelievable, unbelievable man. And also Brad Drewitt, um, we mustn't forget him, the former ATP chairman, the Australian um, former player as well, um, passed away in uh, 2013 of um, of motor neuron disease as well. Such an awful, awful um awful condition and and talk, tell us a little bit Andrew uh, about uh, the beanies and um and where you can get those and obviously all of those that there's been partnerships with tennis Australia and they've been promoting um, promoting it a lot over the last couple of weeks with um Darren Cahill Gavrilova um Leighton Hewitt Craig Tiley and where you can get the beanies as well yeah the beanies has been a uh, it, it's been a story in its own right um when they first started it was kind of a the foundation started just as like the her family, Neil and his wife and the kids, and they, they thought they'd order some beanies and thought they might sell about 5,000 of them um, and hope to raise a bit of money. Um, Neil goes on record and is proud to say that he thought it was a stupid idea at the time and it would never work. Um, and I think this year, Coles alone, who is a, a, a partner of ours this year, might have sold you know upwards of well, over 100,000 beanies, just Coles themselves. So um, the, the idea wasn't stupid and it has get gained momentum every year and they are now becoming a bit of a, a badge of honour. Um, so the beanies, yeah, they um, we've only ever really sold them just, just online and to our uh, fight them in the army um, and at footy games, so at the AFL games over the years. Um, but such is the brand and such is the cause. Um, you know, we've had Coles and Bunnings come on board this year and they're selling the beanies in store nationwide, which is just a um, significant, really significant um, partnership given the fact that for the last three months, if you ever went outside the door during COVID-19 restrictions, you pretty much went to Coles or Bunnings um, or stayed at home and went online. So the three places you can get them were uh, were perfect for the circumstances we were confronted with. Um, and yeah, they've, you know, they're 20 bucks. They've always been 20 bucks and a lot of people love them to wear them as you are now um but uh also for 20 bucks it's just a really easy handy sort of um transaction donation um and um yeah they've been really successful uh and we're still selling them now up until all those big freezes over uh we're still selling them uh for the next couple of weeks in coals and bunnings and online so there's uh, not many left we have sold um i won't swear but a lot of them uh, <laughs> uh a load of them, um, and uh, every year more and more get ordered and more and more get sold, and I think it's just a you know, wonderful way of um, the public looking like they are part of a community, which is the vitamin D community and, and, and the M&D community, um, and they wear them with a lot of pride, and, um, and uh, if you drive around any 
city around um, around Australia now because of such a national campaign. Um, you see them everywhere. Just before we let you go, uh, Andrew, of course, as you say, free. Um, a big freeze is over for uh, another year done and dusted. But the reality is that um, this is around the clock and, and uh, people can always head on to our fightmnd.org.au and, uh, and donate, can't they? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, um, we, um, you know, we invest or, or reinvest 87 cents, 87 percent of all monies raised back into into research. Um, as I said, we've, we've already invested 38 million in just seven years. Um, but that's still not enough. We haven't got there yet. Um, so we keep asking people for their generosity. Um, and I remember Neil being asked one day, what's, you know, what's his grand plan with vitamin D? And he said, my grand plan would be to, to shut the joint down because that would mean that we don't need to do what we're doing anymore. And we found a cure and, you know, people don't suffer like they currently are. So yeah, we, um, we certainly, um, and we're about to sort of now make another round of announcements in September of how we're going to invest, the money raised from Big Three Six uh, and, and all the donations. So uh, it is around the clock, as we said, um, every day. Um, there are about 2,000 people living with a disease that they know will will kill them uh, at some point and it will kill them in a really graphic and horrific way in terms of their body just shutting down around them. So it's a really important cause, as is all charities. We're not you know, putting ourselves above anyone else, but um, you know, we're here to, to raise awareness and money for uh, motor neurone disease. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us and telling us a little bit more about um, Fight MND. It is such a wonderful cause, as I said before, and you can head to fightmnd.org.au, as Joel said, and also on Twitter at Fight MND, Instagram at Fight MND, and Facebook as well. Please donate. Please get a beanie. Um, make sure that we can kill this horrible disease and uh, and fulfill Neil Danaher's goal of finding a cure and, and closing it all up, I guess. And um, now, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks, Val. Thanks, Joel. Andrew Holmes there from uh, Fight MND. Jeez, it's a wonderful cause, Joel. And um, yeah, it's it's brings a tear to the eye to see what what happens to the victims and and just but how positive Neil Danaher is and how unbelievable he's been throughout this whole situation. And everyone at Tennis Australia that's been a partner of this and um, the tennis community gets right behind it. They do a concert uh, most years at the Australian Open as well. So wonderful cause. But that about wraps up our show. It was a very the most positive Benoit of the week I think we've had. So um, that was great. But yeah. Joel, thank you very much for joining us on the show. Or oh, joining me, sorry, not us. Um, I'm one person. Yeah. Um, God, I started started questionably and uh, finished questionably. So why not bookend it? Um, thank you very much, Joel. It's been a pleasure as always. No, it's been good, Val. We'll come back and be better next week. Yeah. But so, no, it was good. It was good. It was good. Um, Mark was amazing. So it's always good to chat to him. Yeah. No, he's, he's an absolute legend. And remember, you can go to uh, at the Tennis Menu on Instagram and Twitter and uh, follow them on Facebook as well and go to thetennismenu.com uh, on the internet if you want to subscribe. And same with Fight MND, as I said, at Fight MND on Twitter and Instagram and on Facebook and fightmnd.org.au on uh, on the internet so go donate and subscribe to both of those guys you can also follow us as well at breakpoint pod on instagram and twitter and also breakpoint one on facebook subscribe on spotify and apple Podcasts. um be great to have your company every week but until then i've been val febo joel frucci on the other line and uh, we'll catch you next week <laughs>